And welcome to episode 196 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers, love looking up the night sky, and this podcast is for anyone else who likes going out under the stars. We have a few uh, Patreon supporters to thank, Shane, I think. Yeah, thanks to uh, Matt, Joseph, and Trevor. Really appreciate the Patreon support. And of course, as always, thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. Uh, it really... Uh, it really helps. And, uh, we're, we're doing quite well on that front. Yeah. Thanks so much to everybody. Uh, you know, when, when we do get, um, uh, support, well, actually when we get any, any emails or, or messages through Patreon or, or support through Patreon or however people are contacting us, we do try to reply back, um, as, as quickly as possible. And, uh, when, when I tried to send the email to Joseph, it, it bounced. So, <laughs> Um, thank you so much, Joseph. Uh, we do really appreciate it. And, uh, and, and just, just to let you know that we, we did try to send you an email as well, but, uh, it, it didn't make it through. And, you know, I, I can understand maybe, uh, maybe for a variety of reasons that that can happen. So that's, uh, that's all good. And thanks again to, uh, to everybody else, because it's kind of allowed us to, to do something, um, fairly big. I think this is probably one of our bigger moves that we've made with the podcast since we started it, uh, low those many months ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. We now have our, I guess our own recording software, which is nice. Um, that might've been the biggest risk to this podcast <laughs> in the past, but now we're, yeah. now we're solid. Yeah. Cause we were using um, just freely available or what was freely available to us and um, just like uh, through the different systems that we use, but none of it was like dedicated to actual astronomy which um, created a few limitations, uh, meaning that um, like we couldn't really share the podcast between us. So somebody always had to sort of act as like the main person and that, that will happen to a certain extent, but um, you know, this, this way, uh, like right now I'm kind of hosting it, but um, like I can just throw Shane the credentials and then he can just go, go ahead and log in. Um, and what else? Oh, yeah, we, we're going to have the ability to uh, maybe stream live to YouTube. We we're kind of playing around with that a little bit before the episode. But um, in light of making sure we get an episode off today, we we sort of put that on the back burner, at least for the time being. But uh, that that looks like a pretty cool opportunity, Shane. Yeah, yeah. Um, what's neat about doing like a live event like that is just like live interaction. Um, right now, we do get a lot of emails from people listening to the podcast, and we enjoy responding and having those conversations. But I think it'd be a little neater to do it live. Like when we were on, I can't even remember the name of that YouTube That's okay. channel. The, the first, uh, I guess, maybe the only YouTube channel we've been on so far. Um, it was kind of neat just to see the questions come in and be able to respond live. So I, I think that would be a neat thing to try out. And um, I guess the challenge there might be finding a time where, you know, people are free to actually sit down and, and watch it live. But um, I'm, I'm excited to give it a try at some point if we can make it work technically. Yeah, I think it gives us uh, some some different opportunities there for sure. Um, yeah, just like you said, it was it was pretty fun like to see uh, like you know Clark uh, hopped in. Clark's uh, a good long term observing friend of mine, and uh, you know he lives out in Ontario now, and I live way out here in Saskatchewan. But uh, he he you know hopped in, and um, that that was pretty cool. But it, it could give us some opportunities to do that sort of thing. Or the one thing you were mentioning, Shane, is is to try to do like some, some live, um, 
observing or, or record some of our observing sessions because we have a little bit more control and it, it sort of opens up the opportunity to integrate, um, I think, a lot of different apps and, and different software into, uh, you know, in, into what we do. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty excited. Looking forward. So this is our sort of first test run and, and we'll see how, uh, how that goes today. So uh, pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that was great uh, conversation we had with Mike Rector last week. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Um, you know, I think it's no secret. I'm not the sketcher here. Uh, that's certainly your realm. Um, but, uh, you know, Mike is probably what the third or maybe fourth person that we've had on yeah. that does a lot of sketching. Um, I always enjoy hearing about the sketching and and how people approach it and why they do it. Um, and uh, it, yeah, it was a really good conversation. And, and um I, I really enjoy Mike's videos. Like, you know, everybody's, yeah. it seems like nowadays people's attention spans are pretty low and, and, uh, I'm certainly not excluded from that group. So having like short three to five minute videos is, uh, it's kind of neat just to fill some time or, you know, during my work day, sometimes I just need a distraction, you know, to change my, my thinking for a few minutes. And, and those are great for that. Yeah. I, I really like those too. Like a couple of people wrote, uh, actually quite a few people wrote and, uh, we're really uh, excited with uh, what Mike had to say and uh, just, just about his sketching and observing in general. Um, and then a few people heard me say that I'd made some videos and, but my video is not near as good as, uh, as what Mike Rector has created. So um, I really think that if people are looking for really good sketching videos, go and check out Mike Rector's uh, Adirondack Astronomy uh, YouTube channel. And uh, yeah, he was able to give me some, uh, some hints on sketching. And like you say, I'm the sketcher, but I mean, I, I really feel like, really feel like that's not, um, I, I'm, you know, I'm really just like a beginner sketcher. I've only been doing it for about, I guess about five years now, maybe six. And, uh, and, oh yeah, it, it's just been a, you know, a real learning curve for me and, uh, not something that, uh, that comes naturally. So I've been very fortunate to, to have people uh, really guide me along in that. And I really enjoyed, uh, listening to Mike talk about it too. Um, yeah, so we're going to, we're going to have a conversation with, uh, with our longtime correspondent, uh, next door, Eric here next week. You want to tell us about that, Shane? Yeah. So for, um, uh, maybe just to kind of refresh everybody, Eric, uh, has sent us a number of emails in the past, but maybe one of the most popular, uh, uh, emails that we, uh, ended up tweeting out was, his visual observation of the James Webb telescope. Um, I think it was new year's Eve, December 31st that night. Yeah. And, uh, it was, it was an amazing observation. Eric's a great observer. Um, and we are, Eric is going to interview us and, uh, you know, some of that is going to appear in the sky news magazine, which is mm -hmm. a, a Canadian astronomy magazine. Um, all RASC members, uh, have, uh, but basically get a subscription with your RASC membership. So um, yeah, we're pretty excited for that. I think it's going to be fun to talk to Eric and I'm, I'm very excited about the questions he's going to ask us. I don't know what they are, but um, I think it'll be fun. Yeah. An expose. Yes. There you go. <laughs> cool. You Any, go. anything else sort of in the housekeeping realm? I think that's it. Yeah. All right. How was your week? It was good. It was yeah. good. I, I got out twice nice. to observe. Um, were you able to get any observing in? No, no. Oof. I mean, it's it, the, the road here is, I mean, I think you, you're able to observe in your backyard and I suppose, well, like there's no way I could observe in my backyard. And, uh, 
yeah, my front driveway is like a sheet of ice and it, it's just not going to happen at least for another couple of weeks. Oh, that's too bad. Um, so Monday night I went out in the backyard, uh, for a nighttime session. I took the, uh, the old Tasco 76 millimeter, the, uh, 10 TE is, is the model. So it's a 76 millimeter aperture with a focal length of 1200 millimeters. So it's like an F 15.8 or something like that. Um, so I had that out and I was just, uh, I was playing around with some, uh, old Kellner's Plossels and, uh, Huygens eyepieces. And, uh, let me tell you, it felt so good to be looking through a telescope again. It's mm. been so long. Wow. Um, you know, Monday night was clear. Uh, what was the temperature that night? I think it was about minus 15. Mm-hmm. Um, not, not warm by any means, but not nearly as cold as it can be around here. Um, but I have to say, uh, the seeing that night, maybe, you know, it, it's contending for the worst I've ever seen. <laughs> it was, it was bad. I, I put the telescope. Well, so I looked at the moon, it was pretty much at Zenith and, um, uh, it was about a 60% moon, I would say. Yeah. Um, the, the seeing really prevented, you know, any sort of uh, critical viewing of the moon, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, I still had some fun. Uh, panning around uh, the Terminator and just trying to see here. What was that one crater I looked at? Um, oh, it might come to me. Uh, Do you have your map there? If you don't have a map, it can be a little bit. Can be. You have like a big table map too. I saw in one of the photos you were sharing, I think with Larry or somebody, or maybe it was. Oh Peter. yeah. 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 With your uh, AT or with your uh, William optics 61. What's that map? Yeah. So just, uh, just, Give me a second here. I have to walk away from the mic to grab okay. it. I should, I should have the coconuts here to replicate the sound of Shane's footsteps uh, going yep. across. The, yep. But, but that wouldn't happen because he's, he's actually got a uh, four inch uh, pile carpeting. It's a very sh- beautiful uh, vomit orange shag. Uh, <laughs> his entire home. So. I, I have exceptionally long arms, so I don't have to actually move that far. I just extend my arms. <laughs> so, so what I have, um, it's, uh, I don't think they sell them anymore, but sky and telescope made these field maps of the moon. Okay. Uh, illustrated by Antonin Ruckel. And, um, uh, you know, it's probably about like a, a 12 inch by 12 inch thing that unfolds into like a two foot by two foot um, map of the moon and it's okay. laminated and like, you can refold it so that you just have like a quarter of the moon. Like the map is just one quarter of the moon. So it's easy to, Not hold to be confused with the quarter moon. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you could buy two, like one is just like the moon, you know, as you see it. And then the other one you could buy was a mirror mirrored image, uh, map of the moon for people okay. with refractors like you. Oh, wow. So it's awesome. Um, and I don't think they sell it anymore, which is a real shame because I think it's one of the best maps that you could use, uh, at the telescope, uh, which is, it's wonderful. Um, so, um, but yeah, what I was looking at that night was right around the, uh, I think it's called, uh, Clairaut, um, C L A I R A U T. Um, it's a neat crater because within it, there's like two smaller craters, and, um, that whole area is just like, 
it's it's very it, you know it must be an older part of the moon because it's just full of you know craters and craterlets. Um, there's there's yeah. a lot of detail to see in that region. Cool. And, uh, it was kind of fun. So I looked at that. It was neat to see uh, the Hyades and the Pleiades basically at zenith too. The moon and, mm-hmm. and those objects were were pretty close. Um, I looked at the trapezium uh, for a little bit within uh, M42, the okay. Great Orion Nebula. But the seeing, uh, again, it was just, it was not good. Like even the B component of the trape- uh, trapezium was not visible all of the time. It would come in and out. There is no hope, I don't think, for the uh, the E uh, member of the trapezium uh, or F or any of the other ones. So um, that was, uh, it was fun to look at, you know, M42 again. Um, but again, you know, I just wish the seeing was better. Yeah. Um, uh, for laughs, I put it on Sirius and this, this is going to tell you how bad the scene was. So, yep. you know, when, when you look at Sirius, it's often dancing, you know, just because, especially in Northern latitudes, cause it's quite low on the horizon. So you're, yeah. you're looking through a lot of garbage. It looked like a planet. It, lo- wow. it was just an orb. Like it wow. wasn't even dancing anymore. <laughs> it was just, it was so bad. Yeah. Um, so anyway, my session Monday night was really just to get out there um, because it's been so long yep. and it was, uh, it felt great. Um, and it, uh, the, the Huygens eyepieces that I was using, uh, they're super sharp, but the eye relief is just so bad on those. Like I, yeah. I was using a 16 millimeter and like a 16 millimeter ortho ortho or plossal, you know, yeah. even those are kind of tight, but usable the Huygens at 16 millimeters. I'm guessing the eye relief was like five millimeters. Maybe yeah. it was really, really tight. Um, so those didn't stay in the focuser very long. Um, I primarily used, a, a 15 millimeter Antares, uh, elite plossal, which is a, a Masuyama, a pseudo Masuyama eyepiece. Yeah. And then, um, I was also using this 25 millimeter fully coated Kellner. Um, these are the eyepieces that came with that Takahashi Starbase telescope, or was, they were made by Starbase. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, Bill Paoloni, you know, was quite favorable of these, and and uh, yeah, it's it's a really nice eyepiece. I, I was enjoying that too. Okay. Yeah. So that was Monday, um, yeah. and then yesterday I did some observing during the afternoon, which was a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, I looked at the moon, or I did look at the moon, but before I get into that, I, I looked at the sun and uh, in hydrogen alpha with my little thirty-five millimeter Lunt telescope. Mm-hmm. And uh, man, it was really, really active. Uh, there was some. There was about three or four pretty large prominences, and there is. Um, there, I guess this would be at about say like 9 PM. Like, so if you picture the sun and then put a clock face on it, uh, if the clock face was at 9 PM, that's where these prominences were, uh, or this major sort of section or region of prominences, uh, one looked like an anvil and it was quite large. Um, I would say it was over a Jupiter diameter in terms of distance from, uh, the surface. And then it, it sort of had a, like a, a filament or a chain of, of matter that went across to the next prominence, which was quite large, but it was much yeah. uh, thinner. Um, and there was a lot of surface detail there. There was a, a very nice, um, uh, sunspot region. There was probably about three or four major black blots that I was able to see through the hydrogen alpha. Um, the hydrogen alpha isn't great for looking at sunspots, but you can still see those darkened areas. 
Um, so anyway, I spent about uh, a half an hour uh, on the sun yesterday and the seeing was really, really good actually, uh, surprisingly, because this was, let's say about 4.30 in the afternoon. Um, so then after that, I put the hydrogen alpha telescope away and I grabbed the uh, little 50 millimeter uh, Borg FL and um, I looked at the moon during the daytime because it was oh, quite wow. high in the eastern sky. And I uh, just thought I'd play around with that. And um, it's, you know, it's really different, right? Because at night, when you're looking at the moon, you're, you're looking all over the Terminator, uh, mostly, because that's where a lot of the contrast is. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you can see a lot of different things. Well, when you're observing the moon in daylight, like that's actually the worst place to look, you know, because you need, you need some illumination um, and, and where it turns to darkness there or where it's not illuminated, there's really nothing to see. So, yeah. um, it, it was kind of interesting because, uh, like I was looking at, um, oh, I think it was Copernicus and, um, it, it, you know, if, if it was nighttime, I wouldn't have been looking there at all because it was, you know, it, it would have been fully illuminated and yeah. probably wouldn't have shown as much contrast, but I felt like during the daytime, I was able to see more contrast in that region of the moon than I would have at night. Yeah. Um, the other thing though, during the daytime is I found that the magnification, I don't know, kind of what, like if you increase magnification, it kind of washes out some of that detail, but yeah. um, anyway, it was super fun. It feels so good to be looking through a telescope again. Uh, I wanted to observe last night because it was clear again, but uh, we had some, uh, some of Jessica's family over visiting. So I was yeah, unable good. to, uh, to go out, but um, yeah, it was nice. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's really good. Uh, you know, the moon is, the moon is up. So my interest is wanes a little bit during that period of time, uh, anyway, but, uh, I get, I get a few other irons in the fire as well. Unfortunately though, sorry, my mic is just turned around here while we're sitting. You might be able to hear there's some snow removal trucks going by in the background too. And it's vibrating the heck out of my office. Right <laughs> so yeah. Anyway. Yeah. The, the other thing too, is my vinyl viewer arrived from Croatia. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, so now the fun begins. I'm trying to, trying to get it to work with the Takahashi, uh, 76 DCU, mm-hmm. uh, but, but not just work, but work without any, um, optical correctors, um, okay. or Barlow's. So the issue with vinyl viewers, um, the light path within the vinyl viewer is about 130 ish millimeters. Yeah. So in order to, um, use the Bino viewer without like a Barlow of any kind, I need to find a way to, to eliminate 130 millimeters from my current light path, Oh yeah, which is not easy. Um, so I'm kind of messing around with all different configurations and I've ordered a, a couple of beta adapters to try to shorten the overall light path. I'm, I'm not sure if I can be successful with this telescope, but, um, That'll be the next challenge with the Bino viewers, just getting it tuned, uh, to work with all of my telescopes that I want to use it with. And, um, I'm kind of glad it's this time of the year where I'm not probably, you know, it, it, it's a good project for like the cloudy nights, you know, yeah. when you can't actually observe, then I can mess around with all of these stupid adapters and try to figure out how to make this thing work natively without any sort of Barlow in place. So more to come on that, but I'm super excited to be using that thing too. 135 mil, or do you say how how much do you need to remove? 13 and a half or 135 millimeters? Uh, low, it's like 130 ish millimeters is is the light path that the final viewer adds. Wow, that's like five inches. Yeah, it's huge. 
It's huge. So um, some telescopes can like some telescopes have enough back focus. Um, like uh, I think like the Takahashi TSA 102, I think it has like 225 millimeters of back focus. So it can just barely accommodate like um, a, a bino viewer and a diagonal and, and have eyepieces come to focus. Um, but like the, the Takahashi DCU, like, I think I've only got like maybe 40 or 50 millimeters of back focus anyway. Like it's a very short draw tube and, um, you just don't have a lot of extra space to play with there. So yeah. I kind of think I'm going to end up having to use a Barlow regardless, but, um, I was using, I was using the Bino viewer just straight through and I was able to get a focus without any Barlow in play, but it was, I don't, I did not have much room to spare. So I'll see what I can do here. Yeah. Huh. That's a little disappointing. Yeah. Yeah. It is a little bit. Um, and, and you know, if it's, uh, if anybody's wondering like, why do I care about using it natively? Why not just throw a Barlow in there and, and then you can achieve focus. Well, yeah. Yeah. Like I, I do want to use this for deep sky observing and I do want some wider fields of view. So like if I'm using the 24 millimeter panoptics, I want my four or five degree field of view. And if I'm putting a Barlow on there, I'm probably, you know, down to about two degrees, which is still, you know, a decent field of view, but, um, there's just for some objects, you don't want power and you, and you want a wider field. So, um, I'll, I'll see what I can do. And some telescopes are better at this than others. You know, some telescopes even have like a, re a removable section, uh, that accommodates the light path of the bino viewer. So you take out, you know, this little tube, and then all of a sudden the bino viewer is able to achieve focus without a Barlow. So, um, we'll see, we'll see where I end up. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. That's uh, yeah, that's a bit of a challenge there. Oh, cool. Well, that's awesome. You've uh, got lots of gear on the go. You've got lots of observing on the go. I'm mostly just uh, teaching my class, uh, which takes uh, one evening a week and, and prepping the class takes another evening a week and uh, prepping the show notes takes an evening a week. And what else do I got on the go? There's something else that's taking up an evening a week and Jeez. all my evenings are <clears throat> taken up right now and uh, working on the calendar for the RESC a little bit for 2023. Uh, that's going to start taking up an evening a week next week. So, uh, but uh, yeah. And, and my, I, I think I'd mentioned this before and I was telling uh, a couple of listeners that um, I had hoped to get to New Zealand this year mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and, and observe and that trip is off. <laughs> oh, that's too bad. Is it uh, COVID related or pandemic related? It is. Yeah. yeah. Because in New Zealand, they haven't been allowing uh you know, people from other countries in, um, very easily at all. And, and so they're gonna, they're gonna start allowing people, but then when the plan came out, I think it was two weeks ago. Now they said that it's going to be a 10 day quarantine and then hopefully, um, that will drop to seven days, um, by the time we would have planned to go there, but it, it's just unrealistic. And because we're going for something that uh, my wife is working on, um, they contacted her and said that, um, we'll just do it, uh, probably, you know, next year or mm. something like that. So we're like, all right, which is sort of better than nothing. Cause at, at first we thought that she would just end up doing it online. And then, uh, and then they said, no, they want, they wanted to do it in person. So, uh, so it, it's maybe going to happen whether I get to go or not now is, uh, that that's definitely, 
uh, up for debate. So we'll see what happens there. So yeah, so there's there's that. We've had some listener emails though. Shall I dive into a couple of these? Yeah, yeah. Why don't you kick that off? Yeah, so uh, I was chatting with uh, Dave uh, a few times, and uh, yeah, he sent uh, he sent this email. I'm going to read that email, but he sent a suggestion for M45, and uh, sort of like a show suggestion, but I'm going to take it in a slightly different uh, direction. But uh, Dave's a, a very experienced observer. He's been observing. Um, he's been observing longer than I have. Um, and he, he sent some sketches where they were just awesome and, uh, made, made before I was, uh, um, when I was just probably starting to think really about doing astronomy and let's see. So one of the suggestions he made though, was it's always uh, sort of one of those debated things in amateur astronomy, about how many stars in M45, uh, can people see like from their site or a dark site or whatever. And M45 is the, uh, Pleiades, uh, star cluster in Taurus, which is one of the most prominent star clusters. You can you can see it from moderately sized cities, like even from our city. I, I can go for a walk in our subdivision, and uh, and I can see the, uh, the Pleiades. I think I can see like um, five stars in in the Pleiades from our neighborhood, or something like that. And then from really dark skies, I've seen uh, lots more. So he kind of was sort of throwing out maybe a, a bit of a challenge there, like how many people. How many stars uh, are people able to see or can they see maybe if people are getting to really dark sites? Um, then he sent some other observations. He said, uh, I think this one was just from the night before last or something. Uh, he sent this one in. I was able to get out two nights ago and did some double star observing uh, since the moon is um, ruining it for everything else. Uh, I was able to see both components of STT-186 in Cancer. They're fairly bright and an equal pair of seventh magnitude stars um, with a one arc second separation. So that's pretty good. I, I don't know that our seeing is good enough right now to get that, as Shane was saying. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said that although I can make up both stars, I couldn't see a gap between them. It's really nice. Uh, it's really nice pair to test your telescope and eyesight. And uh, and then he was asking me if I've done any double star observing, which I have. I have not real. I've done some, but... I don't want to say that I've done any sort of real double star observing. I've set up some doubles for observing to write about. And I've written about those ones uh, just for comprehensive um, observations of like a constellation or something like that, but I'm not Mm -hmm. really a double star observer. Um, He was wondering if I'd been able to split doubles under one arc second with my refractor. I think I did one. It was really close. It was right around one arc second. I forget which one it was. There's some pretty, uh, famous uh, double stars up in uh, the Taurus Poniatowski region there, uh, just on the right shoulder of Ophiuchus. And I was splitting a bunch up there um, when I was writing about Ophiuchus last year. So I think there was one, I think there was one, it was either just over or just under an arc second. I did get that one, but the other ones I, I didn't have any luck with. All right. With, with your but, five inch or with this, which telescope? The four inch. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, one one is, second would be uh, would be challenging. Yeah. Yeah. I had a yeah. There was there was a couple up there um, that I was looking at. But in, anyway, um, yeah. There, there was a lot that I didn't get. So if if you know, I can't remember which ones they were. I wrote about. They're in the uh, RASC Observer's Handbook for twenty twenty two, and uh, yeah, they are in there. Whichever ones I did, I can't recall off the top of my head though, but I did write about them and, and which ones I split. I think I just put the easiest ones in there though. So usually what I do is I go out and 
and I put the the ones that are most easily done. So maybe maybe they weren't they weren't as as hard as one arc second. And I'm not a double star observer, so I'm not very experienced in doing it. So maybe maybe they weren't that uh, that tough. But I remember there was, I think I put like 13 down and end up getting about five of them or something. And then there was a few other ones that I did get eventually because I kind of had them in mind. Because as, as you know, Shane, like once you go back sort of night after night, you kind of can memorize the fields. And then, uh, I did eventually get a couple of them, but I can't remember, I can't remember what their separation was exactly. I mean, one of them was pretty tough though. I recall. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, interesting. I, I, I'm going to add that one to my list too. STT 186. Um, I also like this suggestion about counting stars in M45. Mm. I've never done that. You know, I've, I've observed M45 many, many times and, and I take, it's almost like the double cluster. Like it, it's just so beautiful to look at. I, I just like looking at it and, yeah. um, it would be interesting cause they're, it's a very rich cluster. Like I think there's over, I think there's over like 500 stars in that cluster. So it'd be, yeah, it would be interesting to see how many you can see with varying apertures. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think he was talking naked eye. Like what can you see? Just- oh, naked eye. Okay. Yeah. 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 Yeah, just with your eye, but yeah, through a telescope, you can see like a ton. Um, but yeah, I, I've seen quite a few uh, because that was something that a couple experienced observers had talked to me about, or I'd read about it in sort of the older astronomy books. And uh, I, I tried over the years, um, so you kind of, yeah, I mean, it's it's a little bit of cheating as as you kind of work forward through through the years and gain lots of observing experience, like you know, oneself and, uh, you know, eventually get to darker and darker skies. Like when I was first doing it, I was in my, uh, backyard in Truro and there's just, you know, it's, it's an okay site. Um, you know, about as not quite as dark as like, uh, you know, darker than what we have in our backyards here, but not really dark. And, uh, you know, I was able to get like eight or 10 or whatever. And then just as I was able to, to get to darker and darker sites over the years, you know, I did one, from down in the grasslands once. And I got an awful lot of stars down there because it was in the fall and I had fallen asleep. I think we had good conditions. I think we were observing together and um, we had observed. And then I got up in the morning to, to uh, carry on observing. And I think most people were like just going to bed or had just gone to bed or something. And uh, I just was like, I'm going to see how many stars I can see in the, the Pleiades. So I, have my binoculars, my observing chair, and I just kind of sat there for like t- two hours, like seeing how many I could get. And I mean, you know, you're going back and forth with your binoculars and naked eye and, you know, you, you, you can get quite a few stars from a Bortle one site there anyway, but the whole, like the whole thing just glows. It's like a swarm of blue bees, you know, in, in space, you know, at, at some point, um, the, the whole area is just glowing, just even just to your eye as it, as it gets pretty high, like in a, in a September morning from, uh, you know, from a portal one site, uh, you know, it's really dark and, you know, some of those stars that are seventh, you know, approaching eighth magnitude become visible throughout the whole sky. And so, you know, what the Pleiades would look like pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can easily pull out six from my backyard. Um, yeah. but I've, you know, I, again, I, I don't know if I've really uh, given it the like the attention it deserves under a dark sky to to see how many stars I can see there. Yeah, well, I've done a lot of like so. Typically, when I sketch, the way that I've been sketching is to uh, sketch things naked eye and then what it looks like through a small instrument and kind of have those mm. sort of both sets because um, it's something um, that I'm just interested in doing. Anyway, and and so I've done that with the Pleiades. I have that somewhere 
somewhere it's around here somewhere i think it's over on my shelf here i'm looking at my shelf now and i can see i have a big binder i bet you it's i bet you it's in there i can probably dig that out and share it yeah that'd be cool yeah let's see um yeah and let's see dave went on to say uh, during the show like uh, he was listening to to our show with mike rector and he says that mike mentioned the streamers of stars he noticed coming off m13 and he said mm. that made him smile and it made me smile too, because uh, Dave sent this beautiful sketch made through one of the old Coulter uh, 13.1 F 4.5 uh, Dobsonians. And he mm. said he noticed the same thing uh, 35 years ago. I made a sketch with it and he added the sketch. And then he said, every time I look at M13, I can't help but see those streamers now. Mm-hmm. And he said, actually, there are five of them, five streamers giving it the appearance of a bug. And he said that amongst his uh, local group of friends, they call it the bug globular, um, which I think is is really neat. And uh, then he said when Mike mentioned uh, being intimidated in attempts to sketch the double cluster, um, he said basically he felt the same way and uh, had the exact same feeling for the longest time and finally bit the bullet, took the plunge. And he did, uh, he did them, but he did them separately. He was mm. using uh, a 12-inch scope, I think, at that time and then pieced them together. Uh, for the final sketch and he, he also shared that as well and uh, let's see he mentioned going to cherry springs because i talked about cherry springs like in our personal correspondence and uh, he said it's uh it's like a three or four hour drive for him and that he's been there a bunch of times sent me some photos of it which is really cool to see i'd always wanted to see it because uh i'd always wanted to go there and observe i hear great things but it was really just getting set up and running when i was living in ontario and he said that, that it's a really good world to site for those that live uh, oh, sort wow. of in, in uh, you know, I guess, Ontario and Eastern uh, states and around that area. You know, people should uh, definitely go and try to check it out. Um, what else do you say? He said he noticed a bit of sky glow there towards one of the towns that's nearby, but he said it's not really significant and that anybody within uh, like four or five hours should definitely try to try to go. He said it's uh, it's a great experience. And he mentioned he's been to Stella Fiend too, but not during the convention. He was just on vacation there and the host there gave him a tour anyway. So that's hmm. super cool. And he that sent a photo. Cool. Yeah, he sent a photo of of, uh, of his tour there, which was awesome. And uh, said uh, kind of a strange place for a telescope making convention. I agree. And uh, I, I've never been there, but I've been up. I've been up in that general area. I don't know why I didn't go. I was I was uh, a younger person and uh, I was just there with my folks, but I had just gotten into astronomy and uh, maybe I was just sort of thinking about getting into astronomy, but I knew Stella Fane was there and I don't know why I didn't ask them to go there, but we went, we went and drove up Mount Washington instead, um, which was a different experience. Anyway, so he included a couple sketches, uh, which is really cool. Uh, let's see. Yeah. I had some uh, emails from uh, Filippi. He was uh, sending us some, uh, he was sending us some, some advice that his aunt, his, his aunt runs, this uh, art it's an art studio maybe that's the wrong way to put it it's it's an art school i think is what it is and it's pretty significant i went to her website which is um avilhina.com.br which is a v i l h e n a c o m.br and uh, anyway he was chatting with her and and sent some sent some photos of the place and sent me to the website and i was like when when someone says oh their aunt teaches art you get maybe oh well you know, maybe some people drop over to her house or something. She's got this amazing studio and has um, some really cool YouTube videos and that. Anyway, uh, she said to try the Conte pencils and she said, Canson 200 gram slash M2 paper. And most importantly, um, to prevent the smudging, you can use this matte spray varnish, which I'd heard about before too, but 
I, I don't want to use it in the house when we're all locked in like this um, during the winter. And uh, yeah, and she said that the spray can can work uh, pretty well too. So, and his his weather's been terrible. He's had uh, lots of fog. Um, and then sort of uh, one of the other emails we got was from Astro Geek. Mm-hmm. And he sent us this. Did you see this thing? It's oh, yeah. 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 It's awesome. Yeah. Did you tweet this out? You should tweet this out. Yeah, I probably should. So, yeah, he uh, he imaged uh, asteroid 4749, which has a name and uh, the name is Led Zeppelin. <laughs> um, who knew? Who knew there's an asteroid named after the, the rock and roll band? But um, yeah. Um, yeah, it's a pretty, uh, it's a pretty interesting image. Um, it's, uh, it's a very faint asteroid. It's magnitude 16.1, yeah. um, with a, a diameter of 18.9 miles. So it's, uh, it's not very big and, um, you know, you definitely, I think, I don't know if this would be possible visually, maybe with the right aperture, but, um, yeah. I'm curious what telescope he used to image that with. Um, I think he's I got think- a, I could be wrong here, but I think he's got the uh, five inch TOA. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah very the, nice. Very the nice. Tech, I thought it was the six and I could, I could be wrong there, but I think, I think I thought it was the six and I think he, he said it was the five, but it's okay. one of the larger tacks though. I think, I think anyway, I could be wrong. Yeah. And, and what I, what I love about this is um, he made up like a little, like a little card of sorts, you know, and then there's <laughs> a picture of the band and there's some, you know, statistics or, or things about this asteroid that are interesting. And then his image, which is, is very cool. Um, it reminds me, and I don't know if he's a, if he's a ham radio guy, but it reminds me of, of, um, uh, like ham radio. If you have a contact with somebody, sometimes they exchange, uh, like almost like postcards, right. But you'll mock up your own postcard with your call sign on there and maybe some other interesting, uh, information about your location. And, uh, some people in the ham world collect these things. And, and anyway, this, what, what, uh, Astro geek slash, uh, Steven or Stefan, uh, sent us, uh, is, uh, it reminds me of those. Yeah. It's, it's really cool. I, I think you should, uh, unless, unless we hear from him, I, I mean, he sent it, he sent it to us. So I'm, I'm guessing it's, it's okay. And he sent us lots of stuff before, um, what I really like about the stuff that Astro Geek sends us is that, um, and he says this himself, he says like he really enjoys listening to the podcast and, and that he has um, uh, sort of a passion for quirky and unusual targets. And I just love that. Like when I got this, like, honestly, I, I think I wrote him back and said this, if I didn't, I should have like this, this, this thing that he sent that day, it, that made my day. Like, like I got this and I'm just like, that's it. Like, this is, this is a good day. Like it just really like, uh, you know, not the, you know, I'm not the biggest Led Zeppelin fan. Like I, I, you know, enjoy the band, but, uh, actually my, my father-in-law is a huge Led Zeppelin fan. So I was going to send it to him yeah. and, uh, but I just thought it was so well done. Like, you know, just so, so well done here. So yeah, super, super stoked on that. I'd love to see more of this kind of stuff. So I've never seen something done like this before and uh it's it's unique and uh yeah it's unique and a little bit quirky maybe but i i think uh yeah it's it's done very very well so then he sent us um a link i guess on wikipedia there's uh a listing of uh, many asteroids named after celebrities musicians artists uh and that sort of thing which you know i guess it doesn't surprise me but i i just hadn't really i didn't know that i thought it had to be named after like a specific person or something or other but uh, but apparently not so that's pretty cool wow that's a very very long list <laughs> yeah so maybe that can be tweeted out 
tweeted yeah. it with it. That'd be a project for somebody, I guess. Too. Holy smokes. Would it ever? Yeah. Like, yeah. The, yeah. Wow. Should yeah. Be. Um, had an exchange with, uh, with our friend Phil from the UK. He was asking about observing uh, faint extended objects. And I, yeah. I sent him some links in that, but you know, observing faint and extended objects, um, is, is one of those weird kind of rabbit holes. So, you know, when we all start observing, I think probably the first one that, that we all run across that is um, a bit of an oddball is M33 or Messier 33, which is in the constellation of Triangulum. So sometimes referred to as the Triangulum Galaxy because it's this large face on galaxy. But when you look at it on charts or software or whatever, um, it looks like it's this big thing. And so um, a lot of the time, uh, people that are going for it have already gone and observed um, M31, which is the Andromeda galaxy, which is like around, I don't know, like a fourth or 4.3 magnitude galaxy. It's pretty bright, um, but it's large. So it's not as bright as maybe that magnitude lets, lets it uh, be known to be. But from any kind of reasonably dark sight, you can see it easily naked eye. And then through binoculars or you know, even through binoculars, I've, I've had my glass stand in basically downtown Regina, uh, 50 feet away from the nearest streetlight and uh, observe it through their binoculars. So that's how bright it is. So then people start going after M33 next because it's nearby. It looks like it's sort of a similar thing. It's not much fainter and they think it's going to be um, not much harder to see, especially now that they've bought a telescope or something. And then and then r- routinely I get emails from people saying how difficult that is to see compared to what they thought um, that would be. I don't know. Have you had that same experience sort of in either your own observing or talking to other people? Yeah. Yeah. Those extended objects are, are funny beasts and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, yeah. They, they can really throw you for a loop and, and sometimes cause a lot of frustration, right? Because yeah. you, you, you know, you're questioning, do I have the field? Am I in the right area? And you know, probably you are and <laughs> just, these can be really difficult. Yeah. And there's a long list and I want to go through it comprehensively. And I, I didn't even send Phil a comprehensive list, but it's like, um, like there's the sky brightness. Okay. So the sky mm-hmm. brightness itself, like under any light polluted sky, well, if that's brighter than the galaxy, then you're not going to be able to see it. So mm-hmm. the sky brightness has to be below that, um, the brightness of the galaxy. And then, um, yeah, there's, there's a combination of like your magnification of the instrument, the field of view, um, the true field of view that you have, the apparent field of view of the eyepiece, how much sky is around the object to properly frame it. Um, the list just, it's a, it's a rather long list. Like it's, mm-hmm. you know, I think there's, there's quite a few variables that allow us either to, to see a large object or, or to not see it. And uh, there's a person who's done a lot of research on it named Roger Clark. And you can Google Roger Clark and uh, find his graphs and everything. Um, he wrote a book, I think it's called like visual astronomy or something like that. I bought the book. I spent some time on his website. And then there was a person in the RASC for a number of years, wrote an article in the observer's handbook on this. And I got to say, this is one of those things that I thought I would eventually be able to understand that I've never been able to understand myself. Because to me, it seems like there's, there's a lot of rabbit holes and there's a lot of uh, sort of um, analysis that that takes it to a level that uh, I, I can't fathom. <laughs> anyway, I think mm-hmm. is the way to put it. Um, I don't know if you've ever done any of that research, Shane, um, but uh, no. but I really haven't been able to exactly sort out um, what what people are going on about when they start talking about like the 
square magnitude by degree and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, it, it, it's a mystery to me too. Um, but you know, I think it's super cool. Like if, if Phil or anybody else decides to, mm. um, make it, you know, faint extended objects, something that they, you know, uh, start observing. I, I think that's super cool. Like you and I have talked, it's, it's always very interesting when, you know, we, maybe we throw something out there. Like the, probably the best example was the minor planets episode. We, yeah. we weren't really sure if anybody would listen yeah. to it. And th- those that did, we weren't really sure if they, we would, uh, find any value in it. And lo and behold, it <laughs> all of a sudden we're getting emails from multiple yeah. people saying, Hey, I love looking at this stuff and, or yeah. I'm going to start looking at this stuff. So, um, I think this is just another cool category of objects that if this is uh, something that excites you, um, we'd love to hear about it. Yeah. So I, I do like, I consider myself like that's sort of my specialty. I, I think is in like large, uh, faint extended objects. And I think I'm pretty good at observing them. And I I've done a lot of sketches of things like the, uh, not only the North American Pelican, but there's some sharpless objects nearby that, mm. that I've sketched in amongst like the star cloud there by Deneb and, um, things like IC 1396, uh, which is part of the elephant trunk nebula up in, uh, Cephas and California nebula, Barnard's loop, uh, you know, the list goes on and on. I've wrote um, a list of these objects. They're in the observer's handbook. Some of them are pretty challenging. However, I, I still find it a bit of a mystery. Like I, I thought that with those like calculations and the graphs that, that Roger Clark uses and, and some of the other stuff I read from other folks that I would be able to figure out like sort of magical calculations of telescopes and eyepieces and, and that sort of thing. And I have to a certain extent, but um really it's more through experimentation than just being able to read those, those graphs, at least, at least for me anyway, that the one thing that I learned is that you need a, often a much larger area of sky around the object um, to detect it. And oftentimes um, power is not your friend and that too much power ends up getting, getting applied. So that's one of the reasons why I really like the, the 50 millimeter F5, which strangely enough makes make super short work of things like, uh, like the California nebula or the Rosette nebula or other things, because you've, you've just increased the light gathering just enough over the eye. And these objects, you know, some of the best observers with the best eyes, um, when they were younger could just hold a filter up and, and see these objects. And, and then as we get a little bit older, um, you just need a little bit of a boost and like a 50 millimeter aperture telescope really gives you way more than the boost that you need. So uh, some of these become super, super easy to see with, uh, with very small apertures indeed, but that, that larger instruments with much more magnification, um, just basically in a way like over magnify and give you too small a field of view, um, or a combination of both. And, and that's how it kind of you kind of get lost there, but yeah, it's a bit of a rabbit hole. I don't want to go on about it too much. We, we could do an episode on it, I suppose. But, uh, mm-hmm. but I think my, my rule of thumb is uh, use the widest fields possible and sort of kind of like the smallest instrument possible. I think like, you know, you can get custom telescopes made or just, you know, basically modify uh, finder scopes. Like, like we have basically to, uh, to give you some nice wide fields to be able to start hunting this stuff down. So anyway, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Paul sent us some photos of his AT60 ED. Um, that's one of the astrotechs from, uh, astronomics, man. I love those red accents on that thing. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. When I, when I bought my, um, so I sent, I sent Paul an image of my, uh, William optics, Zenith star, the 61 millimeter. Cause I, I think they're basically the same telescope, um, uh, for the most part. And, um, 
when I bought my William Optic, you had the choice of gold, blue, or red accents. And I went with blue and I kind of regret not getting the red actually. Just, I like the red. It's nice and sharp. Yeah, it is. I like the blue too. I can't say that I, I think all the colors are, are pretty nice. Um, yeah. The, the AT red is a little bit different. I mean, yeah, it, it's all good. I, I don't know why even like I look at, I'm like, oh, I want to get one of these scopes. I, <laughs> I already have a 60. Mine's an F5.9. So it's got a five millimeter short focal length. It's, it's be an identical scope. In fact, you and I compared our scopes and I think they were virtually identical. Yeah. Yeah. We were, we were using, uh, you had your 40 millimeter XW. I had the 41 millimeter pen optic. Yeah. And, um, the only thing I can say, Chris, is that one millimeter of aperture really, (laughs) really blew things up. You know, it just, just, no, I'm joking. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think, I think though, like I was surprised because I, I have the Takahashi 60, uh, fluorite and then, uh, comparing it to like the William optics, which I think was much less expensive. Um, yeah, like it was about 600 Canadian, I think at the time. Yeah. I think mine was about 800 Americans, whatever that is Canadian. Mm-hmm. Um, so a little bit more anyway, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I, boy, you'd have to be something else. I think to be able to really tell the difference on sort of a, a really good, um, a, that was a really good night. We were comparing them to, and we spent a long time. I think we spent so long. I think they end up getting, um, dude over um going back and forth and whatever but uh well, I, I remember we just ran out of gas you and i yeah, were both yeah, like i good. i can't even like i can barely move to the telescope i'm so tired yeah, <laughs> yeah it was fun though and uh so we spent like a long night but i i can't say that uh i mean there was literally moments where i thought oh this one's pulling ahead and then no it just like seeing improved marginally so your seeing conditions would would far far uh more impact the uh the views through a through like a takahashi and astrotech telescope than whether or not you have the takahashi or the or the astrotech but uh yeah it was a lot of fun it was a lot of fun um let's see uh adam sent uh sent me a photo of his observing club site in the uk really appreciate that we'd, we'd been chatting um some time ago and then um he said he would send me some photos and then I was actually thinking, huh, he never did send me those photos. And then he sent me the photos, I think, within two days of me thinking that, um, which is pretty cool. And then he sent uh, an additional photo of the s- December 16th close approach or alignment of Venus, Saturn, and Jupiter, and sent some other information. And uh, that was about eyepieces uh, that he had recently bought. And then you and Larry were chatting about the orthos, I think, uh, that maybe you mentioned at the start. Yeah. Yeah. Larry, uh, got in. So Larry is probably, um, one of our more focused, uh, double star observers. Larry does a lot of that because he lives yeah. in light polluted skies and, um, he's got a few different telescopes and recently put together a small set of the Takahashi MC, uh, orthoscopics, which are 0.965 inch eyepieces. And I've, uh, I've waxed on lots about these eyepieces on the podcast about, um, how much I appreciate them. And, uh, yeah, Larry, Larry's really enjoying them. And he sent us an email and he, um, he's recommending a couple doubles. Uh, the first one is, uh, Struve 162. Uh, it's close to Andromeda. He said, uh, it's a neat triple system. Uh, the A and B stars are very tight, uh, 1.9 arc seconds, but he was able to separate them at 150 times. And, uh, he was using an 80 millimeter F11 refractor. Yep. 
Um, yeah, he said they aren't equal in magnitude, but close. And they make a nice, tight, uh, creamy yellow pair with the B star tucked in nicely uh, with the A star. Um, and then the second one he said is Struve 390. Uh, it's on the border of Perseus and Camelopardalus. Uh, he said, I didn't check my notes before I observed this one. So when I first looked through the eyepiece, I thought it was a very wide double with a yellow primary and an orange secondary. Uh, the tune made a nice colorful pair, but as I looked more, I noticed a very faint dot next to the primary and a third dot that was just barely visible when I checked my notes or sorry, when I checked my notes, I realized that the two faint dots, magnitude 10 and 10 and a half, were the companions to the primary in this triple system. And the orange star was a field star. Uh, huh. So the contrast in magnitude and the colorful star field uh, made this uh, a really nice view and something I will come back to again. So um, mm. yeah, appreciate that, Larry. I'm going to try both of those. Um, that was actually what I was hoping to do last night, but again, uh, I couldn't... Uh, I couldn't get out because family was over. Yeah. You know, one thing I often think about, I there, one of my favorite books on astronomy is on mostly double stars, which is uh, TW Webb's Celestial Objects for Common Telescopes in two parts. Mm. And uh, I think it's worth owning both parts. I think it's perhaps one of the best books ever written on, on visual observing with a small instrument. Um but uh, when when I hear things like like Larry's description here of of the of the close uh, separation as well as the colors, um, Webb goes on at length uh, for that. I, I, I'm kind of curious. I wonder if Larry owns that book, or you know, if other people are looking for books. I mean, it's only available used, I think. And I think Janet Maddy is uh, from the uh, Variable Star, uh, the AVSO uh, group in the states. I think she's the one that had. Uh, had edited the the most recent version seems to be widely available used uh, from 1962. I think that's the most recent version. It's strange that it hasn't been republished by somebody because it is so awesome. Maybe Sky and Telescope or somebody will pick that up and start publishing it again. Um, but it's just a wonderful, wonderful um, observing book, but it's mostly doubles. And the way that the doubles are described in it is, is fantastic. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I, and, you know, knowing, I guess maybe this is in, uh, perspective of knowing what I know now about what a lot of people are observing, how popular double stars are. It makes me, makes me think that that would be, um, a great book to, uh, to republish. Yeah, no kidding. Um, the, the category of double stars, I just don't think it gets enough attention in astronomical circles. Um, you know, Cambridge released a really good guide, um, uh, you know, a bunch of charts and everything for double stars. And then, um, there's a double star book that Mike got me onto that I bought, which is really good, but there's just not a, I, I just feel like there's not enough of this, uh, of yeah. double star content out there. Yeah. Do you own a copy of webs? You do, don't you? Uh, yeah. I can't remember which one though. Um, I think I you got the go planet one, but the other one is yeah. doubles. Yeah. yeah. The one on the doubles is like, it's every constellation visible from England and pretty much like every double star that you can separate using, uh, a four inch or smaller telescope, hmm. pretty comprehensive stuff. And that's all it is. It's just like, here's the star, here's the description next object. Like it's not, you know, it's not like a page turner, right? You're not, it's a, it's a reference book, but uh, yeah, I, I sit and read it at night before I go to bed. A lot of, it's really good. People should get it. Okay. Anything else to add, Shane? No, that's it. 
All right. Uh, yeah, we're kind of looking for some responses uh, to Dave's suggestion about M45. How many stars can you see in M45? Um, and maybe if, if you do write and tell us that, like, let us know your, your sky um, conditions. We have people under really good skies, people under um, light polluted skies. Um, yeah, it, it would be uh, interesting to know. Uh, and in closing, yeah, thanks, Shane. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, please like and subscribe to our podcast. That really helps us out. And we're always excited to get these emails to actualastronomy at gmail.com. Thanks again. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com. <laughs>